Good morning, everyone. We've been on a roll with the Psalms, especially of the King David variety. As of late, we're going to keep that going. Uh, Last week, we heard about David's plea for forgiveness. Psalm 32, really famous psalm, one of those penitential psalms. Uh, He'd been hiding his sin. Perhaps we think about Bathsheba, the murder of her husband. That might have been what that was about. And he finally comes clean after feeling the weight of conviction, this holy guilt that was upon him. So David confesses, he receives forgiveness, and his joy is restored. So Psalm 32 was that picture of that sweet relief of repentance, that the sweetness of confession, the relief that comes with it. This week we are in Psalm 17, and we find David pleading for something very different. He's not confessing his guilt in this psalm, okay? He's not asking for forgiveness in this psalm. Instead, he's confessing his innocence before the Lord. And he's asking for protection and for vindication and for justice. Now, it can be a little frustrating because we don't know the specifics of David's situation. We don't know fully what's going on here that caused him to write this psalm. We don't know who's wronged him. We don't know who's after him. We don't know. But I would imagine when you're a king that there's probably no shortage of enemies even during times of peace. So probably something David was well acquainted with. So, Psalm 17, here we go. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right. You've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me, and you'll find nothing. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regards to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your past. My feet have not slipped. I love this because David wastes no time. If you want to track along with me in your Bible, that'd be a good idea because we're going to go through this chunk at a time. He wastes no time. Hear my prayer, Lord. Hear me. Listen. Give ear to me. Attend to my cry. David is sending up a flare right here in the first verse. SOS, Lord, help. Do you see? I hope you can hear his urgency here. This isn't casual. This is, Lord, I need you. I am in big trouble. Flare goes up. That's verse 1. And he lays all of his cards on the table, I think, from the very start, especially in verse 2. Listen to this. May my vindication, I'm paraphrasing, may my vindication come from your hand, O Lord. Now, he is already teaching us, already. How many of us are willing to leave vindication in God's hands, right? Uh, How tempting is it to instead become the vindicator, right? We want to do that. It's problematic because our anger isn't often righteous. Our ways are not always just. So David is instead asking for God to vindicate him, not himself, not another human being. Some might call that a fool's hope. Uh, Maybe it's a bold gamble to them. Why not take matters into your own hands? But notice, David places his hope in God. He leaves vindication to the Lord. And he sounds a bit like Job as we move into verse 3. He professes his innocence. You know, my lips are free of deceit, that sort of idea. He's protesting. He's pleading his innocence. Now, as you might recall, Job's friends wanted to find a reason for all the things that happened to him. And their conclusion was kind of, well, it must be a hidden sin, Job. You just haven't confessed. It's got to be something wrong with you. And this is the human need to find a reason for evil in the world, to try to blame it on someone else to a degree, right? It's doing this sort of thing. Now, while David isn't claiming to be sinless, David is saying that like Job, 
that sin is not the cause of this situation. No, not in this case. Not like our psalm from last week. In this instance, his heart is true. His conscience is clean. And this is what he means by a just cause, which comes out in the very first part of the psalm. This is the righteous cause of a righteous man. I haven't planned evil against another. I am sinned with my mouth, Lord. Okay? David maintains a very fierce sense of integrity here before God. Okay? So confident is David and in his cause and in his heart's posture that, get this, he opens himself up to the Lord's scrutiny. This is verses 3 and 5, if you read through there. Uh, listen to this. The Lord tested. He invites the Lord to test him, to visit him, to try him. Uh, these words are all strong words, and they're talking about spiritual inquiry. They're talking about deep examination. Folks, this is intense. What David's signing up for here is an intense thing. He invites God, Lord, leave no stone unturned in my life. Whew. I don't know if I'm that brave, to be honest. That's a brave thing to sign up for, and David does. Probe my heart, Lord. Examine me, Lord. Sift me. You'll find I'm telling the truth. My heart is clean on this one. Again, that's a brave prayer. That's a bold prayer. Unlike Psalm 32 from last week, in this instance, David has nothing to hide. Lord, I haven't resulted to violence. I haven't taken vengeance upon myself, and I've stayed on your path. He says it this way, I've held fast to your paths, I haven't strayed. This reminds me of Psalm 1. He hasn't walked in the path of the wicked, okay? He's kept the Lord's commands with regards to this situation. And that was five verses about that. In these opening verses, we can see, and this is something to pay attention to for us, David has already done some serious internal work of the heart, okay? Before he's even brought this before the Lord. This psalm is not sort of a cavalier, off-the-cuff uh, plea for God's help because of his own foolishness. That's not this psalm. David hasn't been foolish. He's done the hard work. He's done the right thing. I hope you guys can kind of get a flavor for that. He's done the internal work of the heart. He's questioned himself. He's examined his heart. Uh, he's allowed God. He's invited God to sift him, to test him. And he's chosen to act righteously. He's planned no evil not sinned with his tongue, has kept himself from dishonesty and deceit. So folks, I mean, the picture we need to have here, one, seeing uh, just the work he's done before he's even come to the Lord. It's a good, that's a good thing to remember. This is someone who takes their spiritual life seriously. <laughs> this is somebody who takes their walk with the Lord very seriously. Do you think this is a picture of someone who's invested? What would you say? David invested here? Is he all in? Give me a nod if, you, if, you, if you're with me. All right, I see that hand. I see that hand, brother. I receive that. Uh, he's invested. He is committed seriously to his spiritual life. He's a good example for us. Verses six, is in six and following. I'll call upon you. You'll answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, you'll notice there's a little shift here. We're moving from protest to prayer in verse 6 and following. Now, finding refuge in God, finding safety in the Lord, that isn't a new idea in the Psalms, is it? Haven't you heard this theme before? Have you heard this theme of seeking refuge in God? Yes. It's a recurring theme, especially for David, right? This is something he's familiar with. Uh, you're my hiding place, Lord, okay? Uh, 
you're not in my hiding place, Lord. You're my shield, Lord. Or I'm like a baby in my mother's womb, Lord. David is familiar with this theme of looking for safety and security in the Lord. And there doesn't seem to be a doubt in David's mind as to whether or not God can rescue him. For David, the Lord is the one who saves by his right hand. That means by his might, by his power. I should hold up my right hand when I do that. <laughs> not my left, right? Uh, David believes he has faith in God's unfailing, steadfast love. It reminds me a bit of Genesis 18:14, when God promises that Sarah will have a child in her old age. And that great phrase, is anything too hard for the Lord? David would say, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. I think the, David, the heights of David's heart cry for deliverance reach a bit of a crescendo once we hit verse 8. And that's the keep me as the apple of your eye part. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, you guys have probably heard, have you heard the apple of your eye, that phrase? Raise a hand if you have. Everybody's heard that. Now, unfortunately, it means something probably a little different than what we think it means. But let me tell you what it does mean that we probably we, uh, we already know. It's a figure of speech um, that does speak of God's heart for us. It does mean we're beloved. So there is a sense of belovedness uh, in this picture. You know, the father or mother of a child, you'd say, you're the apple of my eye, which means I delight in you. I love you with my whole heart. That sentiment is true here, okay? But let me kind of, uh, as for the specifics of what the apple of your eye means, let me, let me get into that a little bit. Apple here means literally it's pupil. So it's a part of the eye. And the pupil in this case is like a little mirror. So if you look closely, you can see the reflection of what someone is looking at in their eyes, okay? The picture here is that God's sight is directed at us. And so our image is reflected back. He's not looking somewhere else, okay? His gaze is fixed upon us. So what it means in David's prayer, what he's saying here is, may your eyes be ever upon me, Lord, okay? May they remain on me. May your eye be vigilant and watchful over me. So that's what apple of your eye means. Furthering this plea for care and protection, David asks for God to hide him in the shadow of his wings. It's a familiar expression in the Old Testament. You find it in Deuteronomy 32. You find it a lot in other Psalms as well. And it's a picture of refreshment, security, fellowship. Uh, it's that mama bird picture of safety. And this image reminds us of our innate vulnerability. It's a very tender image, very tender. Our utter dependence on God, which brings up for most of us uh, all sorts of feelings. We don't always like being dependent, but this is just unashamed, right? Even the mighty King David of Israel, even the mighty king, the leader of God's chosen people, is a child in need of God, okay? Here he is, unabashedly needful of God. Another good example David provides here for us. And not to belabor the point, but if you've read this psalm even semi-carefully, what's the reason for David's plea? Well, he's in very real, very mortal danger, evidently. From who, though? Well, we have to proceed into verses 9 and following. Uh, it's a little vague uh, in the sense that it says David's surrounded by the wicked or his enemies. That's about all we get. But we do know what they want to do. They want to destroy David. They're not just trying to ruin his reputation. Okay, They're not just trying to, let's take a pound of flesh, we'll call it good. They seek his life. He is under active attack right now. Again, probably a more common theme for someone who's a king than it would be uh, for us, perhaps. I mean, you have real enemies when you're a king. And as to the character and the nature of these wicked enemies, 
Verse 10 gives us a picture of that. And listen to this. This is great. It's so vivid. They close their hearts to pity. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew here is pretty graphic. Literally means they close their hearts with fat. Picture that. That's kind of, especially if you see those gnarly pictures they sometimes show you. This is a heart that has heart disease, and they show it to you, and it's like, ugh. Closed by fat, literally that. Hearts are clogged with fat, meaning closed off to God. Closed off, shut off. This means callous, hard-hearted, indifferent to sympathy, not compassionate, violent, quick to harm others, okay? That's who's after David, <laughs> So uh, this is a pretty hard lot that he's dealing with. When people are hard-hearted, are we that surprised when we find pride and arrogance there as well? Not really. This proves the old scriptural adage that yet again, our deeds, our actions, our words, they come from where? Here. <laughs> they come from the heart. Scripturally, a hard heart is not responsive to God's voice. A hard heart is not responsive to God's touch. A hard heart is not responsive to his leading. A hard-hearted person tends to leave a wake behind them. And it tends to be not a good wake, but a destructive one, as we see here. And these wicked, hard-hearted enemies are drawing ever closer to David. If you look at the progression from verses 9 to 12, you can see this. There is a mounting pressure. They're closing in. They're getting closer by the moment. They track me down, they surround me, uh, they throw me down. Here's the picture, folks. This is like an ugly mob or a pack of animals uh, that is surrounding and encircling David, like a crouching lion. That's the picture, a wild animal, much feared in that day, just about to spring, just about to make the kill. This is the tightening of the noose. So something is happening here to David. It's imminent, it's intense, it is urgent. And you're, if you're reading this, you're kind of on the edge of your seat wondering, what's going to happen next? Now, uh, I, might, I might do a show of hands for this. Um, how many of you have been, would you consider, have you been hated by someone to any degree? Have you felt hate from another person? Okay. Some, not everybody. Okay. Um, how many of you have been hated to this degree? I had a feeling I'd see that hand. Yep. If you haven't heard Reed's story, you probably should. Um, I thought of you, brother, when I was preaching, when I was preparing for this. I thought, I think that's one hand that might come up. Not all of us experience hate to this degree. Some do. Not all of us do. I know what it means to be hated, but not to this degree. I don't know the full reality of someone plotting my downfall. Literally. A group of people who have set themselves against me to the point that they want to take my life. I don't know what that's like. And yet... Even in the face of his life being at risk, and let's not make this psalm just sort of a metaphor for nah, hard times, David leaves justice in the Lord's hands. Doesn't the king of Israel, of all people, have the right to take out his enemies? Perhaps he's in a position to defend himself. Perhaps he's not. We don't know. Interesting. Brings up all sorts of ethical questions. But this degree of hate... Uh, is, is staggering, and we've got to hear the urgency of this. This is a dire situation, okay? So, uh, as we move to 13 and 14, uh, what we do know is that David describes his situation in no uncertain terms. Matters are indeed dire. Uh, here's 13 and 14. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their wombs with treasure. They are satisfied with children. 
and they leave their abundance to their infants. Uh, again, I, I don't want to beat, beat a dead horse here, but this is so urgent, this call for deliverance. And the New Testament tells us the prayers of the righteous are effectual. So David beckons the Lord uh, one final time here. Come to my aid. Take care of these wicked ones. And evidently God acts, otherwise David wouldn't be around to write this psalm, right? And God does act. He intercepts David's enemies, this enemies, pardon me, verse, verse 13. Listen to the strong words here, these strong verbs. Arise, confront, subdue, deliver. These are all imperatives, every single one of them, all connected to the, God's mighty deliverance here. While they're closing in, God halts these wicked men in their tracks. He forestalls them, old-fashioned word for it. And that's what confront them means. This is a divine roadblock. Bam. You can't go any further. He subdues David's enemies by his almighty power. And David further describes these wicked pursuers in 14. And this is kind of a confusing verse, so let me see if I can uh, unpack it a little bit. Um, he essentially says, Save me from these people, quote, whose portion is in this life. In other words, their life, this life, present, is their reward. Their reward is a temporal one, okay? It's a temporary one. It's a worldly one. Their reward is the here and now, okay? That's it. Their portion is in this life. That is the key phrase you've got to pay attention to. But David has a hope and a reward beyond just the here and now. He has a hope that's beyond the present. And that carries us into 15. As for me, contrast there, not like these guys that we're just talking about. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. As for me, again, contrast. He's just talked about the wicked, but he's saying, but this is different. <laughs> As for me, I will choose the Lord's path. Remember Joshua saying, As for me and my house, I'll what? Serve the Lord. As for me and my house, same thing. As for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. As for me, I will see his face. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When I awake from death to resurrection, I will see and be satisfied with your likeness, Lord. Love that. And as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Uh, David is speaking of a very deep communion with the Lord here, savoring God's presence. Reminiscent of New Testament passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 12, I will know him even as I'm fully known, or John 3, 2. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. David, I think here, whether he knows it or not, is anticipating the new covenant of Jesus. He is speaking beyond the immediate present here, isn't he? He's speaking of his future with the Lord. Heaven, resurrection. I mean, when he says, when I awake, sleep is sometimes an Old Testament euphemism for death. Some hope is here beyond just the present. David's naming it. Gabriel Marcel says, hope is a memory of the future. And verses like these always remind me of it. Hope is a memory of the future. So David reminds us, in turn, that the true reward, the true gift, is God himself. Communing with the Lord, enjoying his presence, the sweetness of it. Notice, we don't end on a note of vindication here, though that has been a driving theme through the psalm. That's not where we end. The final note of the psalm is a desire for communion and union with God. Uh, Vindication is kind of a nice fringe benefit, I would say. While David wants justice, evidently that's not the ultimate goal here. God's continued presence in David's life 
is in this life and in the life to come. So i got to give it to the old boy. Well done, David. He's kept one eye on the present, one eye on the future. He's maintained well his dual citizenship that we talked about a few weeks back. Now, wrapping things up, uh, I see at least three takeaways from this psalm. There's probably more, but let's hit three, okay? Uh, First one uh, will not be a surprise, I don't think, and it is this. True vindication, true justice comes from the Lord. True vindication, true justice comes from the Lord. Nowhere in Psalm 17 do you see David claim to have the capacity to carry out justice or to vindicate himself. Nowhere. Only God, only the Lord. Only God is just. Only God is almighty. Only God is all-powerful. It is woven throughout the psalm from the beginning to end. For justice, David leans upon the Lord. And as Christians, we don't seek revenge. We don't seek retribution. We don't seek vindication. When push comes to shove, David shows us he will refuse to play by the world's rules. In this instance, revenge, self-justification, vindicating yourself no matter the cost. Nuh-uh. David knew quite well that what a person does in his own eyes might be very righteous, but that we can easily be deceived by that. So for justice, where's David going? He's going to the Lord. Absolutely. And this gives us, instructs us greatly on how we handle our enemies as Christians. So first takeaway, true vindication, true justice, that comes from God. Okay? That's not within human means. Second piece, which we talk about, I would say, fairly often from the pulpit and other places, I think this psalm speaks of a radical dependence. Radical dependence. Even with all of David's temporal, earthly power and influence, he still relies on God. (laughs) Even with all that's at his fingertips, he still relies on God, which immediately poses a question for me. Do I rely on God in that way? question for you as well. Do we rely on God that way, or do we prefer to rely on our self-sufficiency? We're good at that as Americans, right? We're proud of that. Our own savvy, our own fill-in-the-blank. Where will we lean? For his safety and protection, David leans to God. He runs to him. He hides in him like a child. No shame, nothing. Uh, Think of Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David knows better than to think that a mighty empire, horses, military firepower, the most formidable stronghold, will ultimately protect him. The Lord is his shield. The Lord rescues with his mighty right hand. Radical dependence. David's back is against the wall. And you might say, yeah, maybe he has no other choice. You know, and the Lord's his only hope. Yeah, maybe the case. We don't know in this situation. You do get the impression he's out of options, Right? But I think that regardless, when your back is against the wall, where do you turn? David turns to God, okay? So second piece, radical dependence. Radical dependence. And lastly, uh, is really, I think verse 15 ends on a beautiful, wonderful note. And this is what I want to leave you with. Satisfaction in God's presence. Satisfaction in God's presence. For all that besets us in this life, it all comes back to the Lord, doesn't it? Augustine said, a familiar quote to you probably, our hearts are restless until they find their rest where? In me. In you. Right. You've never wanted anything more at heart than the Lord. Never. It's what you're made for in every single sense. 
even in the Westminster Catechism, right? I think it's the first question. What's the chief end and goal of man? You know, to worship God, enjoy him forever, something along those lines. Satisfaction in God's presence. To find our satisfaction in his presence, our heart's true purpose. What we were made for. What we were made for. So that's our third and final point. Satisfaction in God's presence, which feels like it just contextualizes and covers over everything we just heard in this psalm. Okay?